Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, we'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline, and I'm on the marketing team. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Liz. I head up the Ballard creative team. We're We're your host. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of each show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. Now on with the show. Our guest today is New York designer Stuart Manger. Stuart's work has been featured in El Decor, Gallery Magazine, House Beautiful, Homes and Gardens, and this past fall, he released his first book, Romancing the Home, Stylish Interiors for Modern Living. Stuart, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Stuart, okay, so thank you for joining us. We have all had the pleasure of looking through your book, Romancing the Home, and I wanted to start by talking about sort of that unique style that you showcase in the book, which Bunny Williams mentions in her foreword. And I know all of our listeners are very familiar with Bunny because of our partnership with her, but you are known for for blending contemporary and traditional elements in your spaces. And I was curious where that point of view came from and why it is that you love to balance those two sort of disparate aspects in your work. Well, I think it's a combination of several things. Generally, the voice or point of view for a project comes from the home itself as well as the client. And I find that many of my clients, while they come from more traditional backgrounds, want their interiors to feel more current and new. So, you know, architecturally, sometimes you have a a traditional envelope our classically inspired architectural room, but people want to live in it in a fresh, new, you know, current way. And so there's just a natural blend of traditional and, you know, more modern lifestyle. Well, I love that you you really bring in a lot of contemporary art into your rooms. That seems to be a really fantastic way to mix contemporary into the traditional. What are you thinking about when you're selecting art or colors or bringing new contemporary things in? For me, sort of divides into two broad strokes. One is art that I feel comfortable uh, sourcing and purchasing for clients. And that definitely usually has a dollar value that I'm comfortable with. After that, I work with art consultants and often specialists at auction houses and galleries. But I have an affinity myself for more contemporary things anyway. Um, I think they just tend to be more popular. And so when I do consult with a client and I show them images of things, they usually respond to them. And the art can range from what most people would assume, things you hang on the wall, paintings, prints, engravings, but also can incorporate sculpture, pottery, silver at times. And of course, even today, Uh, There's this sort of collective design aesthetic, which includes uh, sculptural furniture made by artists. So it sort of encompasses all of those things. You you worked at Sotheby's for a little bit, I believe. How did that experience kind of, how does that work its way into your spaces, your client spaces? Uh, Well, it was a big influence on me. It was after I graduated from college. I did a postgraduate degree in London, and then I started working at Sotheby's in Bond Street. 
even though I started in general evaluations, I ended up in their furniture department and I was cataloging for, you know, 18th and 19th century furniture sales. And that included furniture, but also tapestries, rugs, um, sometimes small objects. And that definitely formed a foundation for, in a way, what I sort of do now. So there's a familiar quality with that period, which certainly played a role when I did the project in Scotland. But also, it spurred on an interest and curiosity in other 20th century periods, uh, like, you know, Art Deco, and, and certainly, you know, working with contemporary workshops today. So, okay, you mentioned this in the beginning of your book. And I thought we could dive into it a little bit. You're, in your early years, you worked with David Easton, David Kleinberg, Bunny Williams, all very celebrated names in the design industry. And as you mentioned, you worked at Sotheby's. So you took a little bit of an unconventional path. I was curious what those three designers, how their different perspectives influenced you and, and I guess sort of what elements from each of them you draw into your own practice now? So I'm going to start with um, one uh, aspect of working with all of them that was unified. They were all very patient with me, which was excellent. <laughs> because, but I, I was, I think, an enthusiastic student. And when I worked for David Easton, I can tell you it was literally like going to graduate school for interior design. I was there for over five years and did not have any experience. Um, I was introduced to David Easton by Marion McAvoy, who was at the time editor-in-chief of El Decor magazine. And, you know, David was impressed with my auction house knowledge and said he would teach me the rest. And he really did. I mean, he taught me how you build a room, how you start with the rug, and that the rug should have, you know, not only quality, but it should really have something special. Uh, I remember we used to go to showrooms and rugs would be opened. And if he felt the rug would sing, you know, that was a good a good rug. And generally it had to do with color, pattern, you know, all those things. We were all buying antique rugs in those days. But not just how to build a room, but also how to lay out a furniture plan, how to distribute pattern around the room, the color around the room, the importance of having a primary color voice in the room and then having secondary colors in it. They all weren't in your fabric scheme. Sometimes they would be colors in a pair of lamps or an object. In libraries, it was the layering of the books, found pillows, needlepoint pillows on a sofa or a throw on the back of a chair. And of course, you know, how to trim curtains. How do you trim the valance? How do you trim the side panels? And what kind of trims worked with fabrics and how to custom color them all? So it was really like going to graduate school. When I got to David Kleinberg's office, you know, David, also a product of Parrish Hadley, told me, you know, we needed to have fun with our projects. Uh, and he was right. He sort of taught me how to shake things up, to look at interiors, you know, probably in a more urban, progressive way, and how to mix in the 20th century, how to add whimsy, you know, and, and uh, shake things up a little bit. By the time I got to Bunny Williams' office, I felt like I'd come with, you know, 10 years or more of experience. But I always say, you know, at Bunny's office, I never worked so hard, but I never had so much fun. Uh, and Bunny remains still a great friend. And she was wonderful to teach, uh, to offer to write the uh, forward to the book. But at Bunny's office, I learned how to get the project over the finish line. When we finished projects, beds were made, magazines were on the table, 
towels were in the bathroom. There were tissue boxes with tissue and the, the projects were done. And we would have these incredible client reveals. I mean, the clients were always thrilled, sometimes in tears. Bunny taught me, I think, most of all, how to make a bed. <laughs> so, and I, I still use those tips today. Oh, well, the bunny bed is a, it's a thing, right? It is. It is. It's, you can Google it. She has a YouTube video that she did with Schumacher, I believe. Yeah, it's, she's very particular. Do you, do you have a bunny bed? I do. I do. And I love it. (laughs) (laughs) He drank the water. He's still in. (laughs) That's awesome. So, okay. You said that at David Easton's office, one of the things you mentioned was how to distribute pattern around the room. I want to know. But how do you distribute pattern around the room? Well, a lot of it is um, balance through asymmetry. Most people think of David Easton as being so symmetrical. And architecturally, you know, architects like symmetry. And I think David, in his heart, is an architect. And the architectural shell of the houses that he would design and we would build were very balanced and symmetrical. But in a room... You know, obviously, the most obvious example is if you have a strong pattern or print, and in those days, it was often, you know, a floral chintz, those chairs might flank a sofa that would then be in a neutral, or if it was uh, a living room or an urban setting, you know, might be a jewel tone, whereas in a summer house, you might use a white linen. But you didn't want the print or the chintz to just be on a pair of chairs, so then you would add it somewhere else in the room so that it was balanced, but it was asymmetrical. And we never matched things too carefully. A near miss was always better than a perfect match. You'd almost have to look twice to see. Uh, But I mean, everything always blended together and everything looked great together. But, you know, you wanted a little bit of asymmetry, imbalance. I like that a near miss is better than a perfect match. I feel like people are afraid of it not matching. And... I do find it always interesting sometimes when we're we're working on our, our own rooms and we're pulling swatches side by side, maybe they don't match exactly. But once you get, a, you know, they have different textures, they're lit different in the room and they're beside different things and you're experiencing them from different angles. Like you can't tell that they're not matched. It's, it's interesting to me how, how much more you're able to get away with in terms of colors being different and it's still looking like it matches you know, or coordinates? You guys, I mean, I was, again, blown away by the art in this book. And uh, it just seems like each homeowner just really brought it. And I just wanted to know for listeners too, of, to your point, it comes in all shapes and sizes, but when you do furniture as art, how are you layering that into a space? Because furniture still has to function more so than an art piece would. And it seems like you gave it in general, more space, but I didn't know if you had a kind of rhythm to doing these sculptural furniture pieces in the space. No particular rhythm because I like each project to be unique. And so a lot of the uh, furniture that we commission or, you know, we have made by uh, particular artists are made for those particular clients specifically. But, you know, when it comes to designing upholstery, the overriding element is that it must be comfortable. And that was one thing, I mean, Bunny taught me was that, you know, people had to walk into a room and feel like they were invited to sit down. So the upholstery always needed to be comfortable. You know, one very exa- a good example of this is the, the uh, living room that I redid in the 
townhouse in New York because its clients asked me only to do one room, but they had bought this incredible blue chip art, you know, including a Diebenkorn and a Gerhard Richter and some smaller pieces. And the furniture needed to stand up to that quality of art. So we did have, uh, you know, French furniture designer make a wonderful two-door chest, you know, and it was all handmade with beautiful gilded bronze mounts. And also we made a, a beautiful round gilded bronze coffee table with a glass top to go in front of a curved sofa so that the round shape of the coffee table echoed the curve in the sofa. And then, of course, there are wonderful people that make, you know, custom made bronze floor lamps so that you get the patina in the hand of the artist in the texture of the finish of the floor lamp. And all of those things, you know, those subtleties add to the quality and the overall impact. You may not walk out of the room and say, oh, I remember the patina on that lamp or I remember that exact coffee table, but the whole room as a whole stands up to each other. And then I sing about the upholstery is the first thing people want to do when they walk into a room like that is sit down. They don't find the art intimidating. They don't find the pieces too special to, to sit on. So I think in the end, it was very successful. But I think it's all of those elements working together. It did just feel like every piece was special. I think every set of drawers was special and unique. Like nothing seemed of common. And I just think that in your space is so beautiful, but not overwhelming either. So, um. Well, it's always attention to detail. And I even have fun designing pillows and having these wonderful people in Long Island City embroider them or designing the leading edge of a curtain. All of those things, again, add to the, to the success of a project. And I think clients particularly appreciate when you're willing to go to those lengths, because again, it makes the room and their project totally unique. Yeah. The attention to detail and the the fact that you're working with so many artisans to create special pieces for these homes is just really gorgeous. And I love that something as simple as a leading edge on drapery can, you know, we need to be reminded that that's such a small detail, but it's such an impactful detail. Yes, definitely. And I, and I also have not now, you know, I work with so many of these workrooms on a regular basis that I'm always reinventing you know, a design or getting inspired, you know, when I travel by a particular pattern and working that into to the end result, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. One of the things that about those leading edges that you're that you do and one of them is on the cover of the book is they're not just, you know, a two to three inch tape trim. It's like a six to eight inch embroidered. I've, I had never seen that it'd be so exaggerated before, I guess. So that was really surprising to me. And it, it, it's, yeah, it's really dramatic. Thank you. Well, it's bold and graphic. It makes rooms fun and amusing. And it's a little bit of that whimsy I talked about before. You know, we don't all have to just go the route that seems routine and regular. And that's when these opportunities provide themselves to you. It's, it's fun to have a good time with them. Yeah. One of the things, and this kind of Liz and Taryn, I feel like you both touched on this a little bit, but every single item in your rooms, it appears, <laughs> is special, even when it's something that sort of gives your eye a rest or is just a side, you know, there's not a single like normal or like throwaway piece. It's not just like, oh, we just need a side table. Every single thing is so perfect. And I was cute, but the overall look of your room, as we've mentioned, like there are contemporary touches. It 
feels very edited and very polished. Yeah. And polished, but like they're quiet moments too. So I was just intrigued by how you're able to have all these extremely detailed and special items, every single piece in the whole room, but it still is quiet overall. Well, thank yeah, thank you for saying that. And it's very observant because a lot of people who see projects I've done or even see the book, they don't recognize the amount of detail that goes into every item. And you're really right. I mean, even just objects on a table, you know, are are discussed with particular designers and, you know, what works in that room and the color palette. And again, it's not that everything has to match so much, but it's that I really believe in quality. I don't like this whole trend to disposable furniture. Uh, and I feel that any investment a client is willing to make, it should be something that has longevity and a future. And, you know, when it comes to the artwork, I've been very fortunate because several of the artists my clients have invested in, you know, have done incredibly well. And that's not to say that happens with everything, but it's certainly nice when it does. But it makes me pay more attention to all the aspects, whether it's a coffee table or a side table or a pair of candlesticks. Even the design of a candlestick uh, is important in a room. But I do like the overall effect of the room to be inviting. And again, people shouldn't be intimidated. And it's why, you know, when they walk into a room, the first thing they want to do is sit down or, you know, I, I design dining rooms that people will use, you know, and if it means we have to design tablecloths, you know, if they use the room, you know, on a regular basis with their family or whatever, we do that because it's very important to me that people use the rooms that we've designed and they don't, you know, they don't go unused. So. So what would you say to someone who is kind of doing this for themselves on their own and they want to kind of take that same approach? Like they want special pieces that they're going to have for a long time, but they want the overall room to feel contemporary and well, there, there, so there are a couple of different aspects. I mean, one of the things in my book, even though it was not a project that made uh, the book, there is a room in it at the beginning, which is a double spread of a, of a living room. And all the artwork in that room was found online. So, I mean, there is a lot that people can find on their own if they take the time and they look. And there are great websites. I mean, I have found things on Artnet, on eBay, First Dibs. So there is a lot out there for for everybody that can source it themselves. And, you know, you have to have the time. I mean, it's why a lot of people call designers and work with designers is because they don't have the time or they don't have the confidence. But there is a lot available. And I always say, you know, every project needs, you know, something hanging on the wall. And a lot of my clients don't necessarily either have the budget for some art or they don't have the interest. And so, you know, you can go to auction and you can get online and you can find things that are quality, that are by, you know, signed by particular artists and designers and is available and you can frame them modestly, you know, and you can finish a room that way. But when you want the overall look, you got whatever you do, you should make your upholstery comfortable. And whether it's by using tactile fabrics, you know, or using a co comfortable models. I mean, the one thing I, I explained to you was that sofas that you find online, they may look attractive, but they don't always look comfortable. And they're not always comfortable. You've got to sit in every chair. That was one of the things Bunny 
Williams always told me, she said, never buy a chair you haven't sat in. And, you know, because it's got to be comfortable and it should look comfortable. And but textured and tactile fabrics are also a very good way to make upholstery feel comfortable because visually people respond to the texture and the tactile nature of the fabric. So, you know, that that definitely helps. But there's a tremendous amount available. Now, having said that, there is also a tremendous amount of what I call disposable furniture available. So you've got to work your way through the weeds, but it's all out there. Okay. This is something I believe Bunny said on one of our early podcasts that we did with her, but I'm pretty sure she said that if she is unable to sit in the actual chair or sofa, she will have someone, you tell me if this is true or not. Um, she will have someone at like whatever the maker is, take a picture of themselves sitting in the chair and she can tell by their body language whether she thinks it's comfortable or not. Is that true? Oh, absolutely true. And it's interesting because it's sort of a learning curve for clients is when you take them to sit in upholstery and we do have particular uh, workshops that make a lot of our chairs and sofas, you can modify them. I have very tall clients who, you know, like a higher back because it's better for their head and their neck. I have clients, you know, who who like desk chairs that are side chairs, no arms. You know, I mean, people have very particular and all of those things add to the comfort and the use in a particular room. So that's very true. So, okay, is that the key taking your time? Because that is sort of what I'm getting from what you were were saying just now. Like, it's not only having the time to do it, but just taking your time and not and like doing it slowly. Well, yes and no. And I'll tell you why, because yes, you want to take your time because you, you know, you don't want to make mistakes. You know, I always say measure three or four times, then you only have to cut once, you know, especially when you're laying out a rug in a room, you know, you don't want to measure the wrong size. So, and I'm a fanatic about measuring everything, length of a sofa, the height of a bookcase, everything. However, you can't take too much time because you got to get the job done. And that was something that all of my mentors taught me. It's an industry, it's a business, and you know, you've got a deadline and you got to get the thing done. And so, you know, people who hem and haw, I mean, I literally have friends who do not work with designers, so I'm not, you know, casting shadow on anybody, but after 20 years, they're still working on a room. You know, and I say, well, what are you waiting for? You know, I mean, the kids are grown up, gone off to college. I mean, what are you waiting for? So I, I would almost tell people, that it's better even to make one or two mistakes, but get get the project finished because, you know, this is about your life, your enjoyment, your family's enjoyment. And, and, you know, what are you waiting for? I mean, if you don't do it, unfortunately, these projects can go on inevitably. And I've worked on long projects, but, um, but it's important that the clients or, or, you know, your friends – that they enjoy their home. I mean, during COVID, home became so important. And it was incredible how many people refocused on the carpet that was threadbare or the sheets that were getting worn out. And even though they were little things, those little things make people so happy at home. And I like coming home at night after a trip. And that's the best sign, you know, that, you know, you you like it. You've done a good job. It's because you like coming home. And you know, I want my clients to walk into their living room or dining room and use it. 
and not say, oh, I still don't have that chair. I forgot. I didn't buy that bench or, you know, I've got a lamp, but no table to put it on. I mean, that's, you know. Well, maybe if we're, if we're decorating for ourselves, we need to create a, a deadline for ourselves and treat it like it's a clay. Yes. (laughs) In a year from now, it's going to be finished. (laughs) Well, you did so many just gorgeous homes by the ocean and this book. And so even location-wise, these homes and the architecture are beautiful. But I wanted you to talk more about the castle you did, only because how many people do castles? <laughs> well, it was interesting. I was sitting in my office on a Monday morning, and I got a call from my friend who's also a client, and she asked me what I was doing uh, over the weekend. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, I was going to be in the city. You know, maybe we'd get together. And she said, no, we bought a house in Scotland. Can you fly to Edinburgh on Thursday night? And I said, sure. So I bought a ticket. I arrived on Friday, met them, spent the weekend, looked at this house. And of course, they ended up buying it. And you mentioned houses on on the ocean, on the water. And it's also because it's on the cliffs in Scotland overlooking the North Sea. And it's a beautiful, beautiful location. Um, And of course, it's a big stone house. It needed, you know, everything you could possibly do to a house. I mean, at one point I went there and there were four stone exterior walls and nothing else inside. And because we had to install some steel beams to stabilize the whole house. But our goal was to put it back because it was a mid 19th century or is a mid 19th century uh, house. And we wanted to be pure and honest to the interiors And so we actually went to great lengths to sort of reproduce and put everything back after the the heating and the plumbing and the electric was all redone. And of course, then we we did modernize certain things like the kitchen and bathrooms. But I think that if you look at the images, you do feel like the rooms could have been like that, you know, for 150 years. So it was a lot of fun, though. It did take a long time. One thing you learn working in Europe is there's little sense of urgency And so things tend to drag on. But after several years, uh, we did finish it and uh, did improve it. And I I know they they still enjoy it to this day. That's wild. Yes, that house was just beautiful. And I loved the white kitchens, too. You've done quite a few beautiful white kitchens in here, too, that just seem so timeless. Um, And that's in the Scotland one specifically you had like a bright blue island and it was so gorgeous i can only imagine with the view it probably was even more killer but that was just a beautiful home beautiful thank you know a lot of people like white kitchens because i think that they age well um but Mm -hmm. i always encourage clients to obviously use or coordinate something with the white cabinets that is more design definitive like a particular stone on the counters or a blue color island, you know, to make it uh, a feature. Um, Or sometimes we do really fun bar stools at an island, you know, where the kids will sit in the morning and have breakfast and we'll put a fun pattern on it. But lately, it's interesting, a lot of people want uh, painted kitchens in a color. So I did that denim blue kitchen. I just did another blue kitchen in in a recent project that's not in the book. But uh, but those I have to say the one thing about white kitchens is they really do stand the test of time because a lot of people will not redo a kitchen. You'll redo your living room or you'll redo upholstery in your family room. But even after 20 or 25 years, a white kitchen always looks good. So true. I think it is the um, 
Anyway, they look beautiful. Can we also talk about Mallorca as well? Another fantastic, gorgeous, on another cliff overlooking the ocean, but completely different um, stylistically. Sure. No. So one thing we really wanted to do with the book was to include what I say, something for everybody. Because people often say, when you say you're an interior designer, you know, what's your style and what's your definitive style? Mm -hmm. And, you know, having worked for these wonderful sort of giants of design, the overriding theme was that, you know, things should be tailored to the project and to the client. And in this particular case, my clients bought, you know, this incredibly contemporary house. I mean, you know, you sort of think James Bond could live there with the infinity pool and it's, um, you know, perched up on the side of a mountain overlooking the Bay of Palma. And, you know, my clients did not want antiques, which not, would not have been, I think, appropriate for this contemporary architecture. I mean, big sliding doors. So the lifestyle there is so indoor-outdoor that you didn't even want curtains on the windows. But we used a lot of very contemporary pieces, even by some new furniture designers, you know, with L-shaped sectional in their family room, newly made furniture in their dining room. But what I got them to agree to was we designed fabrics that would make the pieces feel more luxurious or special or unique. So, you know, you see a silhouette of a chair and it may look like something, well, anybody could find that. But then when you put a fabric on it that's special or hand-woven, you know, it suddenly makes the piece look so much more special. So we were able to do that throughout. And of course, I designed some of the curtains, you know, to be more contemporary with big bands of color. And then, of course, layered in objects and, you know, um, little accents of color in pillows. But that was um, that was a fun project and an opportunity to do something much more contemporary, which was a nice change. Well, going the opposite, you also wrote up how... Y'all be out there buying that brown furniture right now. <laughs> and I loved it. You were like, FYI, now's the time. No one wants it. And it's good. Because <laughs> you had that one dining room where you were saying stylistically, it was all brown furniture, quote unquote, but it was all different decades and time periods. And so, again, you've done this kind of dining room, all brown furniture. But if you look at the ele- you know, the details, every leg is different. Anyway, it was gorgeous. And it was such a good note. And I laughed out loud at the... <laughs> By now. Well, no one's looking. <laughs> I know. Well, it's it's all available. And it was it was a nice opportunity with that project because the clients wanted more traditional interiors. And so it was fun to go out and look for three pedestal dining room chairs and, and um, you know, three pedestal dining room tables and dining room chairs and sideboards and all of that. So uh, there was one other note I wanted to say also from the book of just like notes you put in here was the rug isn't doesn't have to be first. And I thought that was fun. So if you want to explain why you don't sometimes do the rug first. So that was an interesting project because clients came to me and they were living in this home, but they never felt that they walked into the rooms and they were inviting or warm and comfortable. And so they, quote unquote, the task was to warm up the home. And uh, one of the ways we did that was uh, designing new rugs for rooms and also redoing the upholstery and in some cases the curtains and and then adding more layers to the rooms. But, you know, I was working with finished spaces to some degree. And, you know, when somebody's living in some place, you don't want to come in and just say, okay, we've got to throw everything out with the bathwater and, you know, 
you know, redo it all. So I was trying to use, you know, a lot of the existing finishes and some of the upholstery and the lighting, but I still had to warm up these rooms. And so a rug is a really nice way to do that. And I think, you know, we designed several for the the home and I think it, it turned out very well. And, and the the really comforting thing was when they had their friends over after we had done this, they all walked in and said, they, oh, this is such an improvement. And you know, feels like a home. And, and, you know, when people hear that from their friends, it's very reassuring. Yeah. I think, I mean, a rug is so true. Like the right size rug, it's because, and we've talked about this before, because it's not just a visual thing, but there's something very like sound wise that happens when you get the curtains up and the, the rug down and more upholstery. It's like, it, there's literally like something different in the air. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it softens voices. If you have friends over for dinner, you know, and you're sitting in your dining room, and if you've got a big rug and curtains up and even sometimes wall upholstery or something, you know, it just softens the sound and it makes it more, you know, sort of tolerable and more human. Yeah, I was curious because you, you know, we kind of talked about your sort of more unconventional path into the, into the design world. And I was wondering what you would suggest to someone that wants to be a designer? Like, do they, can they take it on traditional path? Should they go back to school? What, what's your take on it? Anybody who wants to be a future designer should follow their own path. However, the best advice I can give to anybody is you really should go work in a very professional office for somebody you admire and allow yourself, you know, to be mentored by that person because the industry has so many layers. It is not just about, you know, picking pretty fabrics or, you know, painting a room a pretty color. There is so much to learn. And I think, unfortunately, that's probably why I stayed in offices for so long, because by the end, even though I knew the, the, the sort of fundamentals, I was still learning. And I mean, I still learn today. But there, the, you've got to be mentored and you've got to take the time to spend, you know, a handful of years with somebody who you respect and admire. And that can be somebody who works in a very traditional aesthetic or somebody who's totally modern and contemporary, whatever you feel is your thing. Because in addition to designing, the industry is a business. And, you know, it's so important to understand the background of what everybody sees. Mostly what people see are the finished product, whether it's walking into a friend's living room or you see it in a magazine. But 90% of what happens and what goes into that success happens behind the scenes. And that's with you know computer programs and software and purchase orders, client vendor relations. It's 90% follow-up. And if I say I've measured for a rug five times, you know I'm not exaggerating. You know, and you multiply that by the number of rugs in a, in a project and then the number of projects and then measuring for every piece of furniture and being specific on the size of a pillow and, you know, linens for a bed. I mean, I could go on and on and on. It is so important to spend some time in a professional office because mix, mistakes are expensive and especially in this industry. And you can put yourself out of business before you even get started. <laughs> You mentioned in the book that you got your first job at 15. 
or the first project that you worked on as a as a designer or your interest in design. What was it about design at such an early age? Well, that that um, the way the book is written, it says that I would come home from school and my mother was redesigning our home and she had an, a professional interior designer and I would sit in on those meetings. So I was very eager and I liked, you know, the process. And so I, I participated in it and oftentimes they would schedule the meetings on a day when I could run home from school in the afternoon and, and participate in it. So I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sending out purchase orders at 15. <laughs> but when my family did renovate uh, a summer house that we have in around 2000, uh, you know, I did sort of take the lead on that. And, you know, that was published in House Beautiful. And that was a lot of fun. And, you know, there are a lot of architects and designers who have sort of gotten their start doing something, you know, family related project. But I always enjoyed the process. And I liked, you know, even when we would travel, we would see homes, you know, whether they were private or open to the public when we would travel. And I sort of never tired of it. And of course, in the end, when I was introduced to David Easton, it seemed like a natural fit. Well, that's just phenomenal because I have a 15 year old and that level of dedication doesn't come around all too often. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to ask about, because you mentioned how you learn to layer books on like a bookshelf. Is there some kind of tip or trick you could tell us about your your ways? Well, I don't know if there's any trick. I mean, I just think that, first of all, you when you install a bookshelf, and I think, you know, even some images on my social media is that the books don't have to go wall to wall. And if if you, you know, stack them horizontally, they don't have to go shelf to shelf. You should always have room on a bookshelf for a new book. Somebody might give you, you might buy. So for designers, when you're installing a library, you don't have to measure out inch to inch, you know, how many books you need. You should allow the books some, I mean, allow the shelves some breathing room. And you also have to mix in objects with books. So it's not if you've got, you know, five shelves on one side of a desk and five on the other. Don't just do 10 shelves of books. You should also, in those shelves, add objects, you know, whether they're ceramic or they're sculptural, you know, or there's a plate on a stand, you know, and have fun with it. And um, you should also vary the way the books are installed. So a lot of them can be vertical, like you normally would in a library, but also if you have big coffee table books, you can have them horizontally stacked, the widest on the bottom and, you know, smaller books on the top. And I think that's a nice way to make a bookshelf look finished, decorated, but also have room for a new book. Okay. No, that was at least some good yeah. tips and tricks right there alone. So thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Is it time for our design dilemma? I think it is. Okay, so our listener question comes from Susan and she says, hello, ladies. Thank you. And gentlemen, thank you for having such great questions and informative guests. I've learned so much just from listening to each of you. I live in a South Carolina house, which was built to be more of a vacation home for weekly stays and therefore does not have a lot of storage. 
There's no front closet to squirrel away everything that gets dropped at the front door, including leashes, shoes, coats, keys, etc. Our front door opens directly into a front room, which is pictured. She shared her photos, which it's been used more as a dining room in the past. As many homes down here, we bought the house with furniture included and have been trying to make the current floor plan more organized for day-to-day living and a longer stay. I'm recovering the Thomas O'Brien chairs in this photo and plan to keep the table, side table, and bookshelf currently included in the front room. My dilemma is what can I do to utilize the far corner space that is behind the front door when open? Is it a missed opportunity or should it be left open? It's currently a wonderful spot for the Christmas tree. So if you think it should be left open, I'm all for it, but would love for y'all to weigh in with a guest. Many thanks, Susan. Well, I think is, is the, um, main priority finding more storage. She said she had yes. no places for her leashes. And, um, well, I mean, I yes. think, you know, one sort of good idea, especially by an entry hall or even a mudroom door is to have, you know, some sort of a bench that has a top that will open up because you can throw leashes in there, even a pair of boots and store it. And if you want to have it more decorative, you can even make a lightweight cushion for the top so that it's a great place to put on shoes or take off boots you know, in inclement weather. And a a bench is an easy thing to move out of the way and still put your Christmas tree there. Yeah. Susan's face is is like beautifully appointed. It seems Mm -hmm. like it it looks pretty. So I can understand. Yes. So she, you know, we can see the photos and our listeners can. So I'm going to describe it briefly. But in the front room that you're walking into, which has the dining space, the door is sort of centered. And then to the left of the door, are two windows at, at the corner. So she's sort of got this, what, like three, three and a half foot space corner right when you walk in the door that's kind of like an empty space. So I guess that's kind of what she's what she's talking about. It does, it is the perfect spot for a Christmas tree. <laughs> It'd be right in that front front window. Okay, so you're saying just put a bench that has some storage element and that's where she can stow everything away. Yeah, I mean, what's one solution? Um, I mean, you can leave spaces like that just open. I mean, especially when you are first walking into any home, you don't want to clutter the entry. You know, generally people have a console table where they can leave mail or keys or there are a chair where they can put their purse down. The chair is also useful because you can take your shoes on and off um, or guests can too. So, but I think if storage is really a main concern, especially things like dog leashes and you know, boots or whatever. I mean, I think it's nice to have a little place where, you know, I like places to disappear, you know, things like that to disappear and not see them. So it's a possible solution. I, I sometimes in the, in a situation that she has where she's, she's got a window too. So it's, she can't have anything tall, which is why a bench makes sense. But there is a little, what looks like maybe three inch span of wall right next to the door. And she's got a pretty little art piece on there, but I always love those. Like it's sort of like an oversized bracket or like a wall mounted table, you know, and it, it's sort of a little perch. Like we have one, one of them is called like the Julian wall bracket. And we also have one called like the honore Oak bracket. And they're usually like a foot wide, you know, six to eight inch, 12 inches deep. Taryn, you probably know the domes by heart. And it's mounted to the wall and you can just you put a little bowl for your keys, your mail. And at least that's kind of like an, an extra little spot that's... Yeah, wall-mounted console. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But it's, you know, they're 
they're little. They're just yeah, 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 yeah. They're diminutive, but they're nice yeah. in corners like that. Small mm-hmm. spaces. I have two in my own home, and I just have hurricane lamps on them. You know, they're very small, but you just have a place to put a lamp, and it's nice because at night I can light the candles, and it just adds, uh, you know, a little glow in an area that would otherwise have nothing. Right. But Susan, you have a great little, little home. You you're doing very well. Well, she her last her last question was: It is a, is it a missed opportunity if she doesn't fill it? No, definitely not. No, just because this place, I mean, the, the, the worst thing you want to do is over furnish a- any space. I mean, not that adding a little console table or a bench is over furnishing, but, y- you know, you can always add something. But I, I think sometimes, you know, you just there are areas that don't necessarily need anything. Well, and as a right at the entry of your home, you really don't want a huge spot that you naturally drop everything either. Like you're not going to want to see that. So you almost need to force yourself. Yes, maybe like something smaller or like you said, something where you can put the one pair of shoes and the dog leash. So it is hidden, but you're not going to want to see mail or anything like. So it's probably better you don't have something big there that you naturally start Mm -hmm. dumping stuff on. For when people yeah, come and then over it just and gets like, junky. Yeah, right. Here's my gorgeous dining room with a junky table. So it's probably yeah. good to do something. Force yourself to keep it clean. Well, and you know, we do, we do have like you could do something outside. Like, could you get a little garden stool or something? It looks like she has a porch that you could put your dog leash on. That's on the porch, or I feel like that's also could be an option. Not also not junky, but. Like my mom used to have a little like garden bench by our back door and that's where she put all the like. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, and, and Bunny does that in, beautifully, actually. Yeah, and the weather's good in South Carolina. So outside True. is good. True. Okay. Well, Susan, let us know what you decide. Good luck. Thanks for listening. All right, Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. This was so fun. Your book is beautiful. Can you tell everyone where they can find you and follow you and purchase your yes, book? Yes. Um, well, the book Romancing the Home is available on Amazon. You can find me on Instagram, Stuart Manger Design, my website, stuartmangerdesign.com. And, you know, any questions, people should feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. And um, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcast at ballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy Happy decorating. decorating!